Hello, hello, my name is Quinn Avery and this is Murder and Wine, the podcast where I talk about true crime, scary stories, survival stories, whatever you want. I, uh, took a little break, and by a little break, I mean more than a year, but I'm back and, uh, I have a doozy of a story for you today, so grab your wine, water, or whiskey, and let's get into it. So, today I'm going to talk about the crazy story of the Uruguayan flight that crashed in the Andes Mountains on October 13th, 1972. My sources today are the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 Wikipedia article and a History.com article by Kieran Mulvaney. So buckle up. I, that, I, mm, that's probably not good to say. Uh, and uh, here we go. Alright, so Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 was scheduled to take off from Montevideo. I'm sorry if I butcher any names of places or people. I apologize in advance. Uh, It was scheduled to take off from Montevideo, Uruguay and arrive in Santiago, Chile, but the flight was cut short when the co-pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Lagurara, made a grave mistake. He believed they were approaching Curico, where the plane would begin to descend, but he failed to notice they were still 60 to 70 kilometers away from their designated location. The plane crashed into a mountain, which immediately tore off both wings and the tail part, while the remaining of the plane plummeted down a glacier at speeds estimated to be 350 kilometers an hour, and it fell 725 meters before settling and by settling, I mean crashing, at the bottom into ice and snow. So let's talk a little bit about the plane. There were 45 passengers on board, 19 of which were members of the Old Christians Club rugby union team, as well as their families and friends. The rugby team was scheduled to play against the Old Boys Club in Santiago, Chile. Everyone was in great spirits, and the pilot, the main pilot, Colonel Julio Cesar Ferratis, was very experienced and had flown over the Andes many times. On this day, he was training the co-pilot, who was at the controls at the time of the crash. The weather was not great on the day of the 13th, with so much cloud cover that the pilots were only operating with the instruments on the plane. I'm not familiar with plane talk, so please bear with me here. The pilots couldn't visually confirm their location and were navigating through the instruments on the plane and they were also using radio navigation. So Lagarara requested permission to descend because he thought they were approaching Kiriko, which is where they were supposed to go. Uh, And uh, air traffic control granted it because they were not aware that the plane was still over the Andes which I feel like you should probably know that. Uh, As the plane began to descend, severe turbulence shook the craft, and at first the passengers were joking around about the turbulence until they saw just how close they were to the mountain. The pilots attempted to regain altitude, but it was too late. There have been reports that the plane crashed into the mountain on three separate occasions. The first took the tail part off the plane, The second crash took the right wing, and the third crash took the left wing. The official investigation of the crash determined the cause, 
was controlled flight into terrain due to pilot error. So this it gets a little yucky here. So the initial aftermath of the crash was gruesome. Five people were killed when the tail section broke apart. And I once again, I apologize if, and I know I will pronounce some of these names wrong. So the five people who were killed when the tail section broke apart were Lieutenant Ramon Saul Martinez, Orvido Ramirez, Gaston Costamal, Alejo Hunai, and Guido Magri. Only moments after the tail section broke apart, two people fell out of the rear fuselage, and those people were Daniel Shaw and Carlos Valida. Valida originally survived his fall, but he was soon suffocated in the deep snow. And then four passengers died when the fuselage struck the snowbank. The team physician, Dr. Francisco Nicola, and his wife, Esther Nicola, Eugenia Parado, and Fernando Vasquez. Those who died, those were the passengers who died when it struck the snowbank. So the pilot, the main pilot, Ferrada, died instantly when the impact forced his head out of the window. I know, the co-pilot, this part's horrible. The co-pilot, Lagarara, was very, very injured and he asked one of the passengers to find a pistol and shoot him. Yeah, but the passenger refused. So after the crash, 33 of the original 45 were alive, but many with extremely severe injuries, ranging from impalements to broken legs. Two medical students on board, Roberto Canessa and Gustavo Zerbino, immediately began attending to the critically wounded. A passenger, Nando Pereira, had a skull fracture and spent three days in a coma. Another passenger, Enrique, Enrique Platero, was impaled in the abdomen by metal from the plane, and when he removed it, some intestine came out with it. Absolutely horrific. But after he pulled the metal out, he immediately started helping other people. And unfortunately, nobody who had compound fractures survived. So search and rescue teams were notified that the plane was missing, and they began their search. Aircrafts flew overhead, but they were unable to see the white plane against the snow. So remaining passengers who were able tried to use lipstick that they found in luggage to write an SOS on the roof of the plane, but they quickly ran out of lipstick and they realized they couldn't make it big enough for the planes and the helicopters to see it from the sky. Uh, They also tried making a cross out of luggage, but that went unnoticed as well. And after eight days, the search was called off. So five more people died during the first night. Co-pilot Lagarara, Francisco Abal, Grazila Mariani, Felipe Macarain, and Julio Martinez Lamas. So 28 remained alive, and they began to craft a makeshift shelter out of seats, luggage, and other debris from the plane. They also used luggage, seats, and also snow to close off the open end of the fuselage to keep out the cold, which is very smart. So Pereira, the passenger who was in a coma, woke three days later to find out his mother died 
and that his sister was gravely injured. So she ended up succumbing to her injuries. So then that left 27 people. So during the nights, temperatures dropped down to minus 30 degrees Celsius, and none of the passengers were equipped to deal with the cold. Some had never even seen snow in their lives. They had no medical supplies, no warm clothes, and they only had three pairs of sunglass, sunglasses to prevent snow blindness, which is definitely a problem. Uh, they did manage to find a radio shoved between the seats, and one of the passengers crafted a long antenna using electrical cable from the plane, and with the radio fixed, fixed, I guess, in quotation marks, this is when they heard the news that the search had been called off. An excerpt from the book, Alive, the story of the Andy survivors, reads, The others who had clustered around Roy, upon hearing the news, began to sob and pray, all except Nando Parado, who looked calmly up at the mountains which rose to the west. Gustavo Nikolic came out of the aircraft and, seeing their faces, knew what they had heard. Nikolic climbed through the hole in the wall of suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel, and looked at the mournful faces which were turned towards him. Hey boys, he shouted. There's some good news. We just heard on the radio. They've called off the search. Inside the crowded aircraft there was silence. As the hopelessness of their predicament enveloped them, they wept. Why the hell is that good news? Piaz shouted angrily at Nikolik. Because it means, he said, that we're going to get out of here on our own. The courage of this one boy prevented a flood of total despair. That right there by itself is pretty amazing. I would feel complete, completely helpless. Um, so after that, the crew soon realized that they were dangerously low on food. All they had were eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, candies, dried plums, and several bottles of wine. I Those bottles of wine would be gone the very first night. <laughs> they started rationing, and even as strict as they were, the food supply started to dwindle even more. After a week, they were completely out of food. So... What were they to do? Facing starvation and no hope of being rescued, the survivors resorted to eating the dead passengers. It was not an easy decision to make. Every one of the dead was a friend, a family member, a teammate, or another loved one. So in his memoir, Miracle in the Andes, 72 Days on the Mountain and My Long Trek Home, Nando Parado wrote about this decision. At high altitude, the body's caloric needs are astronomical. We were starving in earnest, with no hope of finding food, but our hunger soon grew so voracious that we searched anyway. Again and again, we scoured the fuselage in search of crumbs and morsels. We tried to eat strips of leather torn from pieces of luggage, though we knew that the chemicals they'd been treated with would do us more harm than good. We ripped open seat cushions, hoping to find straw, but found only inedible upholstery foam. Again and again, I came to the same conclusion. Unless we wanted to eat the clothes we were wearing, there was nothing here but aluminum, plastic, ice, and rock. Yikes. Uh, everyone was so disgusted at resorting to this, they only ate the skin, muscle, and fat 
but when the supply of flesh ran out, they had to resort to eating hearts and other organs. So then, as if the conditions that they were living in, living, weren't horrid enough, an avalanche struck the wreckage 17 days after the crash, and it killed eight more people. Enrique Platero, Liliana Methol, Gustavo Nikolic, Daniel Maspons, Juan Menendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Roque, and Marcelo Perez. The remaining survivors were trapped in the fuselage for three whole days, and then they had to make the painstaking decision of eating the newest deceased. Just absolutely awful. So the remaining members soon realized the only way they were going to survive was to take matters into their own hands. As some snow began to melt with the coming of summer, they began to explore the immediate vicinity around the airplane. But altitude sickness, snow blindness, snow blindness, sorry, dehydration, and other ailments made it physically impossible to get very far. So they decided to form a team of the most able members, which included Roberto Canessa, Antonio Vicentin, and Nando Perotto. So Canessa urged them to wait seven days before they set off in hopes that the temperatures would increase so they wouldn't freeze to death on their trek. So after seven days passed, the three headed east, and after several hours of walking, they found the tail of the plane, which was miraculously still basically intact. They found luggage containing a box of chocolates, three meat patties, a bottle of rum, nice, cigarettes, extra clothes, very nice, comic books, and a little medicine. They also found a two-way radio. So they camped at the tail for the night. The next morning, they, just, they continued east, but the temperature dropped so low in the night that they almost froze to death. They decided it would be wise to take the two-way radio along with batteries they found at the tail, back to the initial site to try and make an SOS call. But they soon discovered that the batteries were way too heavy to carry with them back to the initial site, so they figured they would take the radio back and disconnect the original radio at the site and kind of figure it out, but it was very futile from the beginning. They spent several days trying to get the radio to work, but it never did. So they knew they needed to go back out. And their only choice at this point was to climb the mountains to the west instead. So three more died during their decision to go back out. Arturo Noguera and Rafael Ekvarin both died from gangrene, and Numa Turcati died from malnourishment. The remaining survivors knew they would soon follow the deceased if they didn't get help, but they needed a way to survive the harsh temperatures outside of the fuselage. They decided to make sleeping bags from insulation, copper wire, and waterproof fabric. Nando Parado described in his book, once again, Miracle in the Andes, 72 Days on the Mountain and My Long Trek Home. He described how they came up with the idea of making a sleeping bag. The second challenge would be to protect ourselves from exposure, especially after sundown. At this time of year, we could expect daytime temperatures well above freezing, but the nights were still cold enough to kill us, and we knew now that we couldn't expect to find shelter on the open slopes. 
We needed a way to survive the long nights without freezing, and the quilted bats of insulation we'd taken from the tail section gave our, us our solution. As we brainstormed about the trip, we realized we could sew the patches together to create a large, warm quilt. Then we realized that by folding the quilt in half and stitching the seams together, we could create an insulated sleeping bag large enough for all three expeditionaries to sleep in. With the warmth of three bodies trapped by the insulating cloth, we might be able to weather the coldest nights. Carlitos Paez took on the challenge. His mother had taught him to sew when he was a young boy, and with the needles and thread from the sewing kit found in his mother's cosmetic case, he began to work. To speed the progress, Carlitos taught others to sew, and we all took our turns. Coche Inciarte, Gustavo Zerbino, and Fitu Strauch turned out to be our best and fastest tailors. And that's the end of the excerpt there. So Parado, Canessa, and Vizintin set out once again, this time equipped with sleeping bags. So on December 12th, the three began to summit the glacier to the west. Without any mountaineering gear, it proved very difficult. They only brought enough food supplies for three days, as they believed they were closer to Kiriko than they actually were, because that was the co-pilot's dying statement. So on the third day of their exploration, Canessa stayed at the camp that they set up, and Parado and Vicentin scaled another mountain that was about 300 feet tall, expecting to see the valleys of Chile only to be met with vast mountain ranges. They were still tens of kilometers away from Chile. They rejoined Canessa at the camp where they settled for the night. The next morning, they all agreed that the hike was going to take longer than expected, so Vizintin agreed to return to the fuselage and left his portions of food for Canessa and Parado. The way back was completely downhill, and Vicentin used a makeshift sled that he made out of a seat, and he managed to return to the initial site within an hour. That's pretty impressive, actually. Uh, Parado and Canessa took three hours to get to the summit, where they both saw the vast mountains. But then they noticed two peaks in the horizon to the west that weren't covered in snow, and they were sure that that, that was their way out. This, this part pulls my heartstrings a little bit. So on the summit, Parado told Canessa, We may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. Canessa agreed. You and I are friends, Nando. We have been through so much. Now let's go die together. Oh my god, that gives me goosebumps. So they followed the ridge towards the valley and descended a considerable distance. The men hiked for several more days until they reached the snow line after they followed a river, the source of the Rio San Jose. They soon started to see more and more signs of civilization. They saw some camps, and finally, they saw cows. So as they were building camp to spend the night, they saw three men on horseback on the other side of the river. Can you imagine the relief that you would feel from seeing other people? Oh my god, I would just burst into tears holy hell uh so parado attempted to call out to the three men but the river was far too loud but one of the men on uh with the horses shouted out tomorrow and sure enough the man returned the next day he wrote a note and attached the note and a pencil to a rock and string and threw it across the river parado wrote a reply and the reply reads I come from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. 
We have been walking for ten days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plane, there are still fourteen injured people. We have to get out from here quickly and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come to fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? Uh, my heart. That is actually... Oh my god. The man... Uh, the man who originally uh, tossed the note over, Sergio Catalan, read the note and he signed to them that he understood. He threw some bread to them across the river and then he rode on his horse for 10 hours to get help. So when news broke about the survivors of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, where they persisted on for 72 days it garnered international attention. The Chilean Air Force supplied three helicopters to help assist in the rescue of the remaining survivors. They were amazed at the journey Canessa and Parado took to get help. The terrain that they had to, like, trek through, it seemed impossible, especially in their condition, but they did it. On December 22nd, 1972, the helicopters reached the survivors. Due to the terrain of where they were, the helicopters could only touch down with a single skid, and because of the altitude and the weight limits, they were only able to take half of the survivors. So four members of the rescue team stayed at the camp with the other survivors, and the next day, December 23rd, the remaining survivors were rescued. All of the survivors were taken to the hospital, where they were treated for things such as altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. The rescue took place more than two months after the plane went down. And unfortunately, the dead bodies were left at the crash site, with the rescuers not wanting to risk the dangerous terrain. After they were rescued, the survivors weren't willing to share that they resorted to cannibalism at first. They only wanted to privately tell their families. But rumors began to pour out after photographs of a half-eaten human leg were plastered on the front page of two Chilean newspapers. Because, of course, why wouldn't it be? The survivors were met with lots of backlash from the community and from family members of the deceased, but they explained the pact that the survivors had made that if they were to die, they would sacrifice their flesh so the rest could survive. And the outroar died down, and people were more understanding, still horrible but they had to survive that and that was the only way they could so uh finally the families of the victims and the chilean authorities agreed to bury the bodies at the site of the crash so 12 men and three priests were flown to the site where they dug a large grave about 400 to 800 meters away from the crash just where they thought it would be safe from avalanches so they dug the large grave built a little simple stone altar and they put an iron cross on it, and they engraved a plaque that read, The world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, O God, to you. And that is the horrifying and true story of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. Holy cow. Oopsies. Sorry, I'm just knocking shit over. I remember hearing about that story, like, I don't know, years ago for the first time and I really only heard about like the initial crash and resorting to cannibalism that's basically all I knew from it uh but reading the survival stories of all of the men uh who lived on 
is insane. It's crazy how much they persisted and refused to give up. And some of the excerpts from the the memoirs and the books that were written about them are incredible. And I highly suggest uh, you to read the actual books and do your own research on this if you can, because it really is an amazing story of survival and persistence. All right, so that is it for this episode. I will have another one on Thursday. All right, everyone, enjoy your murder and wine. <laughs>